We worship God again now in the reading and the hearing of his word. Turning this morning, as you can see in your bulletin, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Remember last week we took a bit of a detour in our series on 2 Samuel. Not a total departure last week, but a detour. Last week we cast a glance over at Psalm 60. And remember, we we went there just for that one Sunday. We turned to Psalm 60 because that's the psalm that David wrote at the time when he was involved in the military campaigns that we had just read about in 2 Samuel. Campaigns against the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Syrians and the Ammonites and perhaps some others. Put the two together, put the history that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel together with the prayer that's recorded for us in the Psalms. And what you're left with is a rather full picture of what happened and what it felt like. The Israelites prevailed in those those campaigns, no question, but there was suffering and setback along the way. And we cast a glance over at Psalm 60, and it was that psalm especially that helped us to realize that. So that's what we looked at last Sunday. That's why we went there. This Sunday, we're back to 2 Samuel. And it needs to be said, what we're going to have before us here this morning in 2 Samuel, is one of the hardest things to read in the whole book. And it is David's descent into deep and devastating sin. We've known all along that we were headed here eventually. We've known recently that it's been getting closer and closer every Sunday. And this Sunday, here we are. And I'll admit, I did wonder, as I was thinking about this series and eyeing the calendar, I did wonder when it would make the most sense for us to turn to this chapter. In particular, I wondered if it would be a bit jarring for us to turn to this chapter right after Thanksgiving. Here we are today, just three days removed from the chance to to gather with family and friends and And to give thanks to God for all of his goodness to us, to rejoice in God, do we really need to turn to chapter 11 today, right after Thanksgiving? And then I thought, absolutely. Because it makes a sad kind of perfect sense for us to turn to this chapter today. And I say that because in the book itself, that is 2 Samuel, David's descent into sin in chapter 11, this comes right after victory and honor and glory and the goodness of God. No doubt David was a man of thanksgiving for all of that victory and honor. Victory and honor and glory and divine goodness. And then the very next thing we read is what we're about to hear in chapter 11. So I say it it makes a sad kind of perfect sense for us to turn to this chapter today. I realize it's jarring. But you know what? In 2 Samuel, it's meant to be. Before I read the chapter, 
Notice this briefly about how it connects with the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, chapter 10, remember the armies of Israel were successful against the Ammonites, among others. The Ammonites were a nation just to the east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. And the capital city of the Ammonites was a city called Rabbah. Well, here in chapter 11, our chapter this morning, the campaign against the Ammonites rages on. In particular, the armies of Israel are able to besiege the Ammonite capital city of Rabbah. So knowing that, knowing that connection from chapter 10 into 11. I think that helps us to understand what's going on here. So it is jarring to go from chapter 10 to chapter 11, but it's also the next episode in the context of what is an ongoing campaign. So having said that, let me read for us. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if, his, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so ends chapter 11, a sad story to be sure, a sad story on so many levels. For me, one of the most striking aspects of this whole story is the contrast between David and Uriah And notice, Uriah is not even a native Israelite. Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary, says this, quote, David had expected and hoped that Uriah would prove to be like himself. Instead, Uriah proved to be a man of integrity, whose first loyalty was to the king's interests rather than to his own pleasure. End quote. This is a man David should have honored. Instead, not only did he honor him, he had him killed, and he had Uriah himself deliver his own death warrant. So that's our story this morning. That's chapter 11. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word including these words, which are hard words. But we would not shrink back from them. We would not retreat from them. Instead, we would lean in and listen and hear your voice. Grant us now to hear your voice, holy God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's no easy way to introduce this sermon. After hearing that, after hearing that chapter read. 
This is one of the most notorious moral collapses in the whole of the Bible, maybe the most. And there's no gentle way to get into this. This is just so sad and so shocking. I will say this. Precisely because it is one of the most, perhaps the most, notorious moral collapse in the whole of the Bible. For that very reason, this is a Bible story that's relatively well known even outside Christian circles. This tale of temptation and caving into it and everything that follows from that, it's become practically proverbial. It's almost like it doesn't really matter if it happened or not. It's entered the realm of moral folklore. Kind of like Job and his suffering, or Judas and his betrayal, or Paul and his conversion. These stories can take on the air of myth in the popular mind. doesn't matter if they happen or not. They're just illustrative of various truths and principles and perennial human plot lines. Famous fiction that simply gets our attention and drives a point home. And inspires all sorts of songs and stories and poems ever since. So it's worth reminding ourselves here this morning, there's nothing mythical about this. It is certainly illustrative of truths and principles and perennial plot lines. And it certainly has inspired songs and stories and poems ever since. But there is nothing mythical about this. This happened. And it's because it happened that it is so sad. But it's also because it happened that we can learn some very powerful lessons from it. That's not to say that you cannot learn powerful lessons from imaginary tales. Of course you can. And there's some of that in the Bible itself. Think about the parables of Jesus. But it's simply to say that the very reality of this episode in David's life, especially given everything that we've already learned about it, in First and Second Samuel, the very reality of this episode is one of the things that makes it the wake-up call it is and ought to be in our lives today. So let's wake up today. And let's learn from it. And there are two lessons in particular that I want to highlight for us today. And I'll go ahead right now and tell you what they are. The first lesson is sin leads to sin. And the second is genuine believers can sin badly. There's a lot we can learn from this chapter. Those two lessons are the ones I'll highlight today. Sin leads to sin. And genuine believers can sin badly. So let's take the first of those. Sin leads to sin. How does this whole episode begin? We'll look again at the very beginning of the chapter. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, I want to say, it's not necessarily the case that David was wrong 
to remain at Jerusalem this time. In other words, it's not necessarily the case that David was obligated as king to go out with his armies every time. And along the same lines, I also want to say, sometimes uh, people give David a hard time for the fact that it was late in the afternoon when he was rising from his couch, as if it must be the case that he'd been a sluggard that day. There is such a thing as perfectly holy late afternoon rest, and I will take a stand for that principle. All that to say, we, we do want to exercise some interpretive caution when it comes to these opening verses and the conclusions that we come to about David in these opening verses. But I will say this, even if David was in the right to stay home this time, and even if he was rising from perfectly holy late afternoon rest, still the fact that the writer includes these details at the beginning of the story, it does have a certain ominous ring to it. Because we know where the story is going. We can say that much. And in any case, as we keep going, there's no moral ambiguity at all about the fact that David then looks lustfully upon another man's wife. That's not unclear. And what follows from there, sure enough, is sin leading to sin. That lustful look leads to David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then that adultery with Bathsheba leads, David, leads to David trying to cover it up. And to cover it up in the most despicable ways. In ways that, that play upon Uriah's own moral uprightness. The woman's husband. And then that attempted cover-up leads to David having Uriah killed. And again, to do so in a despicable way. This is breathtaking. In a way that gets David's generals and soldiers involved. In a way that gets other men killed in battle. Alongside Uriah. And all of that from a lustful look. Sin leads to sin. And understand, I'm not saying that sin always leads to further sin. And I'm certainly not saying that sin always leads to the kind of spectacular sin and misery that follows in this chapter. But I am saying that it is of the character, it is of the nature of sin that it leads to more. And if it does not lead there, It's only because God in his grace has restrained us, has renewed us, has restored us. Sin leads to sin. That's what sin is like. And it's worth unpacking that a little bit. What is it about sin that makes that true? That it leads to further sin? Why is that the case? What accounts for that? Well, here, let me, let me mention three things so we can understand this more fully. The first is this. It's the nature of sin that it involves a turning away from God. Sin is a matter of turning our back on God and wandering away from Him, at least to some degree. At least in that moment. 
Well, think about it. Insofar as you've turned away from God and wandered away from him, sadly, then it's that much easier to act in a way that dishonors him again. Because you've already created a certain distance between yourself and God. That makes it a little less uncomfortable to sin against him a second time. And then a third. To put it the other way around, it's when you're close to somebody... That it's especially and rightly uncomfortable to dishonor them in some way because they're standing right there. And you're standing right there with them. You're so close and that very closeness becomes a deterrent. Haven't we found that to be true in this age of electronic communication and online anonymity? If you're removed from somebody... Instead of face-to-face and in person with that somebody, and especially if you can hide yourself behind some kind of cloak of anonymity, we all know how it goes. At that point, you can end up saying things that you would never say to that person to their face. I'm sure you've gotten emails like that. You may have sent some. I'm sure you've received comments like that. You may have posted some. At that point, you can end up saying things that you'd never say to that person to their face because there's this distance between you and them that horribly frees you up. Well, that's an illustration. Sin is like that. I'm not saying that email and comments sections are sinful. It's an illustration. You get the idea. Sin is like that. You've already created a certain distance between yourself and God when you've sinned against him, turning your back on him, wandering just a little bit away from him. That makes it a little less uncomfortable to sin against him again, a little less painful. And then it's a little less painful yet the third time, and so it goes. So here we're reflecting upon this point that sin leads to sin. We're asking the question, why is that the case? That's the first answer. Sin creates a certain distance between us and God, reduces our sense of his nearness, his fellowship. Here's a second answer to that same question. And by the way, these are all related. These are all aspects of the same dreadful reality. The second point is this. It's the nature of sin... That it involves a transgression of the word of God. And that's a kind of distancing as well. When we sin, we put just a little bit of space between us and the word. And what that means is that we're just a little bit removed from the writings that have the power to guide us and correct us and call us back. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy. Well, it makes perfect sense. To the degree that you put some space between yourself and those writings, to that degree you've opened yourself up the sinning further and falling farther because the teaching and the reproof and the correction and the training are now just at least a step away and maybe more than just one step. Now here's a third answer to this question. What is it about sin that it 
tends to lead to more? Here's a third answer to that question. It's characteristic of sin that it numbs our consciences. That's one of the dangers of it. It can have a numbing effect on us, a deadening effect. And I suppose this this third answer is the bitter fruit of the first two. The first answer was, you wander away from God, you lose a sense of His fellowship, His nearness, His closeness. The second answer was, you wander away from the Word of God, you put some distance between you and God's truth. And that all leads to this third point, which is that you end up muffling or muting the testimony of your own conscience within. The soul speaks. Conscience is that internal testimony. It's that voice within us that reminds us what's right and wrong. And then it evaluates us as to whether or not we've acted in accordance with what's right and wrong. And then it praises or pains us depending upon what it concludes about us when it evaluates us like that. The soul speaks. Conscience is that internal testimony. Well, sin, when left untreated, muffles or mutes that voice within. It turns down the volume or it distorts it so that the testimony of conscience is made quiet or it's made uncertain. And at that point, when that's true, the odds are higher that you'll sin further and fall farther. We've all had some experience with that sort of thing lately as well. Audio malfunctions in the age of Zoom. We all know what it's like when somebody's audio isn't working. It's distorted in some way, or it's turned down too far, or it's turned off altogether. Well, sin can have the effect of messing with the audio of our own conscience. And at that point, when that's true, the odds are higher. It's not a guarantee. We're reflecting upon the nature of sin, but the odds are higher that you'll keep going. All that to say, when we say our first overall point this morning, that sin leads to sin, that's one way of unpacking it. That's one way of of accounting for that Phenomenon. All three of the points that we just made. It distances us from God, and it distances us from the Word of God, and it has the effect of diminishing or distorting the testimony of our conscience. And getting back to David, no, we don't know exactly how this whole sad scenario unfolded internally in David's own experience. And we've always got to be careful with a story like this that we... Don't read details into it that aren't there, that we don't end up psychologizing David in ways that the text won't warrant. So we can admit that we've only got so much here, but we can say quite confidently, sin is like that. So it's no wonder that we should have a story like this in the Bible, even a story about a man after God's own heart. This happened, and it happened because this sort of thing does happen in human experience, even in Christian experience. And brothers and sisters, it still does. How many sad stories are out there? How many sad people are out there right now who are looking at their lives right now and saying, how did I end up here? 
How did this happen? How did I get to the point that I was reduced to this? That I was capable of doing some of the things that I've done. Worst of all, how did I get to the point that it doesn't seem to bother me all that much? And it's not uncommon that it can all be traced back to a moment in time, maybe a moment in time a good while ago, when they sinned in some way and they did not handle it well, which is to handle it with quick and earnest repentance that runs back to the grace of God. And because they didn't handle it like that, it just got worse from there. And now here they are wondering how they turned out like this. And in their minds, they keep rewinding to that one moment and wishing they could go back and handle it so very differently. I was thinking, it's kind of like those, those training sessions that they have, well, in all sorts of professions, right? Police training, medical training, customer service call center training. And part of the training session is to show a video of a reenactment of some real-life scenario. And at a significant moment in the video, at a turning point in the scenario, the leader of the training session presses pause on the video... And he turns and faces the trainees. And he says something like, now let's talk about what's going on right here. At this turning point, at this crossroads moment. Let's talk about what the options are here. For how to respond to this, let's discuss what this cop or this nurse or this operator ought to do next. And not do next. And those videos are inspired in part by the fact that there are cops and nurses and call center, center operators who handled a crossroads moment foolishly, and it led to some very bad outcomes. And the purpose of the training session is to say, learn from this. Learn what folly was and what wisdom would have been. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Pause video. David, get out. Get out now. David, run away from what you're looking at and run to God and he didn't Christian you are a trainee today we all are a Christian worship service is a lot of things among other things it's a training session so I say to you today learn what folly was and is learn what wisdom is And wisdom is handling your sin with quick and earnest repentance that runs back to the grace of God because you know what sin is like and what it leads to. So may we be trained. So that's our first point this morning. Sin leads to sin. Here's our second, the second of two. This one shorter than the first. And the point is genuine believers can sin badly. I said at the outset that I wanted to go there as well. So this is our second of two points. Genuine believers 
can sin badly. David was a genuine believer in God. And not just any believer. David who fell like this. David is a man after God's own heart. Well then it must be. Must be that it's possible for a genuine believer to fall like this. That that's one of the truths. That's implied by this episode. And not only possible for a genuine believer to sin badly like this, but conceivable that that believer's loving God should be angry with him because of that sin. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. Genuine believers can sin badly. And like a lot of truths in Scripture, this one's double-edged. And here's what I mean by that. There's warning in it. And yet there's actually a kind of consolation in it. Both of those. There's warning in it, to be sure. But there's actually a kind of consolation here. Think about each of those. First of all, there's warning in this. In that this ought to make us wary about sin in our own lives. Christian, this could be you. Someday, down the road, even if that seems positively unimaginable to you today, this could be you. And so it ought to make you cry out for the grace of God so that it's never you. Because listen, it doesn't have to be. It ought to make you cry out for the grace of God. It ought to make you careful about the temptations that you entertain. It ought to make you alert to the possibility that you'd wander from God and end up a long, long way from Him and wondering, how did I end up here? This ought to scare you. At least a little in a wholesome, biblical, God-fearing way. So there's warning in it. The thought that genuine believers can sin and sin badly, fall and fall deeply. But then I, I do want to say, there's, there's consolation here too. If you yourself went down, into deep and devastating sin in the past and you then repented of it. You don't have to be tormented now with the fear that you must not be a genuine believer after all because if you were, you never would have gone down into those depths because genuine believers never do. No, in fact, they do. David did. This is proof of it. So that's why I say there's that kind of comfort here. Now, just to be clear, this comfort is not for you so long as you remain in a place of impenitence of that sin. If you've gone down into deep and devastating sin and you're still camped out there and you're perfectly at peace there, well, that's a different story. Instead, for you this morning, the summons is repent of it. Wake up. Pack up that tent and declare war and get out. But if you have repented of it, 
As much as you ought to be grieved by it, by what you did and by the damage that you did, maybe even lasting damage, you do not have to come to the heartbreaking, life-breaking conclusion that you're beyond the grace of God and it must be that you always were. David certainly wasn't. Christian, you aren't either. So that's why I say that there's, there's consolation here as well as mourning. And we do justice to this this sad story when we reflect when we reflect upon both of those truths. So that's 2 Samuel 11 and truths we can glean from it and apply. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll keep going to chapter 12. Next Sunday we'll get to the point that David repents. But not yet. Not this Sunday. This Sunday, David sins badly, and God is angry, and that's how the chapter ends. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Period. And as disheartening and as painful And as frightening as it is for us to contemplate what happens here in this chapter, it's still good for us to be reminded of what sin is like, to be reminded of what's possible even in the Christian life. It's hard, but it's good for us. So even today, right after Thanksgiving, let's give thanks again for what we've learned. These things are good for us. Because our God is good to us. And it's in his word where we find this. It's his good voice that we've heard today. Let's pray together. Father, we do tremble. We have been reminded of what sin is like. And what it tends to lead to. Reminded that by our sin we wander from you, we wander from your word, we we numb our own consciences. Have mercy upon us, we pray. Reminded this morning of what is possible Not just out there in the world, but right here, in here, in the church, in our lives, in our hearts and minds, we tremble. God have mercy. Grant us your grace, we pray, to stay near you, to live lives of quick and earnest and humble repentance. We thank you for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.